turn then in our Bibles to chapters 38 and 39 of Job. One of the the staple ingredients of uh, legal dramas and detective stories is the person who appears to have a rock-solid case against them. Uh, All the evidence seems to point to their guilt. Uh, Everybody is convinced that they are guilty of a heartless crime. And all that that person can say to uh, the lawyer or investigator or whoever it is, is, trust me, I did not do this. Uh, You know me. You know my character. You know what I'm like. Uh, I didn't do this. You have simply got to believe me. That is the issue facing Job. Will he trust in the good and loving and just character of God despite the circumstances around him? Uh, He's lost everything. Life has fallen apart. And uh, he has all the the seeming evidence that God uh, is against him. Uh, uh, That God indeed, as he has alleged, has been unfair. Job himself has been in the dock. Uh, His three clumsy comforters have stuck to their dogma that people who are suffering are therefore guilty of some uh, grievous sin. Job knows that he's not guilty of uh, sins such as they are implying. And if Job had confessed to some imaginary sin in order to obtain relief, he would have jettisoned his own integrity. Uh, he, would have also, he would also have been using God for his own ends and, and kind of inventing a, a sin to confess. And so Job manfully insists on his innocence. But in protesting his innocence, he goes too far. And this is where uh, we concluded that uh, Elihu, in his, his speech, uh, was in the right. Uh, he wasn't saying that Job was suffering because he was sinning, but he's saying that in his suffering, Job is sinning. It's an important difference. Uh, under the pressure of uh, ill health and financial loss, uh, his, the, the wheels falling off the wagon of his life. Job has said things about God which he should never have said. Uh, he's beginning to believe in a distorted uh, picture of God's character, which of course is the devil's lie. And he said that God doesn't listen or speak. And so now uh, it is God who must respond by saying, you don't see the full picture, Job. Uh, you don't know the, the whys and the wherefores of my acts, but you must trust me. And all that we have in, in these concluding chapters is there to enlarge our minds as to the the power and the wisdom of God. <coughs> to understand that God is at work doing his good, even when we cannot understand how there can be any good in any situation. So we have this great finale. The three useless comforters have run themselves in the ground. And Elihu, as we said, is, is speaking, we believe, prophetically and accurately, uh, has been allowed to say his piece and he's come to the end of his piece. And he comes at the end to these words which uh, prepare us for the great entrance. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor, 
God comes in awesome majesty. And then it is God himself who speaks. What Job has complained about now actually happens. God, he has complained, has not spoken. Now he speaks. And of course, this is what many people long for. Uh, If only God would make himself clearer, if only God would speak to me, Uh, if only God would say something, implying that God uh, is dumb. And yet, so often when people say that today, they uh, are, are deaf and 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 blind to the fact that God is speaking uh, through his creation, as we sang in Psalm 19, and especially now through the the gospel, through the Bible, through the preached word. God is speaking. Our problem isn't that God doesn't speak, it's that we're not listening. But the manner of God's coming and the manner of his speaking is certainly not what we have expected. He comes in a storm. And we might have expected God to have come with words of comfort, uh, to have come uh, in all gentleness to Job. Job, who has suffered so much uh, physically and emotionally uh, and suffered at the hands of his so-called friends. We might have expected God, as it were, to put a loving uh, arm around Job and comforted him. But instead, uh, Job is summoned to brace himself and hear the words of Almighty God. He comes in the storm. Uh, it's a reminder that one of the casualties of, of Job, uh, Job's suffering has been that God has been diminished. Uh, God has been shrunk, as it were, in his thinking. Uh, Job has been so preoccupied with himself and with his suffering that God has been uh, shunted out of the horizon of his thinking. So much so that Job feels able to challenge God and call God to account. His speech has been rash at times. And so God comes in the shock and awe of a storm. And this, of course, is often God's way of appearing to people. Ah, God comes in a storm to Ezekiel. Jesus, the Son, manifests his power in the storm in Galilee, uh, demonstrates the the awesomeness of of our redemption and the the darkness of sin and the the way that the the gatherings are delivered from their demons and the the demons going into the the herd of pigs and going over the, the precipice. And people are disturbed by God's coming near. And rather than this word of comfort or explanation, uh, and, and this again is what we'd expect, isn't it? We'd expect God to tell Job what went on in chapter 1. We'd expect God to tell Job about the, the challenge of Satan. We'd expect God to tell Job that all of this has been uh, uh, gone through in order that Job himself might be vindicated. But there's none of that. Job is held to account himself now. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? So here's the issue. Here is why uh, we have these, uh, these thundering chapters. 
Job has questioned God's wisdom or his counsel. His, what's God's counsel? God's counsel uh, is his wisdom displayed in creating everything and in governing all that he has done. And Job has questioned what God has done. Job has effectively said, I could do better myself if I had the chance. Questioned God's governance, God's timing, and God's so-called silence. Therefore, Job must brace himself and be challenged. But even though Job doesn't probably expect this kind of response from God, what a dignity God gives to Job in giving him this word, in giving him uh, this wonderful answer. And for the first time, uh, it's the word Yahweh that's used of God. Now, every time you see uh, Lord in the Bible with capital letters, it's translating uh, an important uh, Hebrew word for God, the word that, uh, the, the name that God revealed himself to Moses, the burning bush. I am who I am. Uh, it's the covenant name for God. It's the name that reminds us that God commits himself to a people. God is faithful to his people. And uh, right through all these chapters, um, when God has been mentioned, it's, not, it's been uh, El, Elohim that's been used. Uh, and you see that in the English translation. It's simply God that's mentioned. But here the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking. The covenant-making God, the God who is for his people. This is Job's God who is speaking. The God who wants Job to be right with him again. But the God who must first confront Job before that is going to, to happen. And the Lord fires questions at Job which will require him continually, were he to have an opportunity, to say no to all of them. Can you do this? Do you know this? No, Lord. No, Lord. I don't would be the appropriate response. <clears throat> the two chapters are, are, are kind of divided uh, in terms of, first of all, uh, it's a look at the, the un inanimate creation, the non-living creation. Well, at the end of chapter 38, you have mentioned of, of the lions and so on. But mainly, uh, it is the, the, the non-living creation. And then uh, you, you come into the... Uh, the, the, kind of the nature video of chapter 39, looking at all of the different uh, aspects of, of uh, the, the wildlife and, and their, the, the wise creation and governance of, of the wild. But first, though, uh, God tells us in chapter 38 that his counsel, his wise governance, extends over all things, including evil. The Lord begins asking Job if he was present at the creation. And God is pictured uh, first as an architect, drawing up measurements, a surveyor, pegging out the lines, and a builder laying the foundations and the cornerstone. And creation is pictured as a time of exuberant joy. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? Uh, these verses are, are so, so memorable. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Verse 6. And what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. The morning stars probably uh, a kind of 
metaphor for uh, the angels slash the sons of God or the heavenly council. And you have this picture of the heavenly council singing joyfully at the creation as God sets the stars in their place, names them each one, and looks on his creation and pronounces it good. And there's this heavenly chorus, the background, a time of joyful exuberance. King Alfonso X of Spain was known as Alfonso the Learned, and, and he uttered uh, something which, in the light of Job, was quite ignorant. He said, uh, Had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. <laughs> what crass overreaching! But Job, in a sense, by uh, some of the things he said, has implied that he could have done a better job of ordering creation than God has done. Hence his offence. But not only is God's counsel perfect and praiseworthy in creation, but his counsel includes the way that he uh, providentially overrules evil. And the next section, uh, section uh, going on from verse uh, 8 down to uh, verse 17, uh, we have, there's a number of pictures that are used. We, we have the sea. And we have darkness and we have the abode of the dead. And these are all significant in, in, in Hebrew poetry and, and, and language for communicating that the chaos and the disorder of evil, the sea especially, is seen as epitomizing, as, as being a figure of evil. And Job has already shown that, that he understands and uses this kind of imagery for evil. He asks in chapter 7, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? But God says, The sea, angry and turbulent, has its bounds. It's pictured as having been birthed, <clears throat> bursting from the womb on the day of its birth and causing havoc from day one like a, a truculent uh, toddler. <coughs> It has its limits. There's a hand that confines the wild child with a swaddling band and sets limits for this wild sea, saying, Thus far you may come and no further. Now, it's a huge distinction between Christianity and, and, and some forms of Eastern religion and some of the, the kind of uh, worldviews that you get in, in some science fiction. Uh, where evil is seen as equal and opposite to goodness. So you have a dualistic world where there's a, a, a force of good and, and a, a power of evil and, and they're in conflict with one another. Not so. Uh, the, the revelation of God uh, always insists that, that evil uh, has not always been. It is a, a disordered creation. And it is under the power and restricted by Almighty God, who is vastly superior. And just as the sea is shut in by God but not dried up, God avails himself even of evil for his own work. And of course, whenever we're perplexed by that thought, the one thing that we need to think on is the cross. Because that, on the one hand, is the, the Ultimate, it's the most extreme 
manifestation of evil, but at the same time, the most wonderful working of goodness. So there's the sea, and then the next section looks at light and darkness. Uh, And this time, uh, the emphasis is on the fact that evil, like darkness, won't endure. God will bring it to its end. God, general-like, gives orders to the morning light. He summons the morning light, and he shows the dawn its place. And then, (laughs) one of the my favourite pictures in, in, in this, these two chapters of wonderful uh, imagery is the one of the, the domestic or the, the waitress and uh, going over to the, the tablecloth and seizing the tablecloth by its edges, shakes the tablecloth so that the crumbs are shaken from the cloth. And that's the picture of the, the light exposing uh, evildoers evildoers scattering before the light. And then another beautiful picture of the dawn uh, transforming the grey two-dimensional landscape uh, into 3D. And God says, like the impress of a seal upon clay, its features stand out. Stand out like those of a garment. And what's being said here is that for the wicked, uh, their light is darkness. Their, their preferred environment is the dark. You know, the, the burglars stealthily moving around in the shadows. But then the light comes and the wicked are, are thrown into the open and they can't do their work. And God says, every dawn is a reminder that wickedness will come to its end. Every time that the light comes and dispels darkness and exposes wicked deeds, God is reminding us that as sovereign over even evil, he will bring it to an end. Verses 16 to 18. The extremities of the creation are known to God, though not to Job. The great ocean depths, again, representing the gates of death. The realm of the dead is not unknown to God, neither is it outside his control. And of course, uh, speaking as, as we must do from New Testament angle, we speak of one uh, who descended into the abode of the dead. Plundered death of its spoil and rose victorious. Jesus, the great conqueror over death, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Light and darkness are all under God's control. What is the way to the abode of light, God asks, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the path to their dwellings? And Job, of course, has to answer, no, Lord, no, no, I don't. But God can answer in the affirmative. Light and darkness uh, signify uh, not just ultimate reality, ultimate created reality, but they signify the great issues of good and evil and of order and disorder. And these big issues are under God's governance, under his wise counsel. 
Now, in all of that, in all that section where, where we're looking at the sea and darkness and the abode of the dead, and we're seeing that they, they are, are pictures of evil and wickedness. And, and God is speaking about the light coming and dispersing these things. And God is telling us, I know where the abode of the dead is. God is saying that uh, even wickedness and evil must fulfill his purposes. It's not an independent power. And even although it's anomalous in a sense because we don't understand how it could come into a perfect world, by faith we believe that God is in control of it. And there are purposes that it serves that could be served in no other way. And again, think of the cross. Next part of chapter 38 is continuing uh, with the, the non-living creation. Uh, and especially now we're asked to look up, to look up at the skies and consider what the skies tell us about the, the wonderful counsel of God. Job is asked if he's entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail. Snow and hail. And here they're connected with, with warfare. I think of the the hail um, that was part of the plagues that struck Egypt or the hail that came to Joshua's aid against the Amorites. God stores these up until the time when he unleashes them. So there's the water that is stored up, uh, frozen for God's purposes, uh, destructive purposes. But water, of course, is also life-giving and God is in control of the life-giving waters. The rains not only fill the channels that irrigate the great croplands of the world, but we're told that they water a land where no one lives. Verse uh, 26 of chapter uh, 38. To satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Have you ever seen any of the, the, the beautiful photography of some of the, the desert areas? I'm thinking of uh, Namibia, some of the the, the edges of the Namibian desert, you know, places which get hardly any rainfall, but uh, on, on near the surface of the ground there are seeds of uh, ephemeral plants, short-lived plants, and it just takes the, the, the slightest amount of rainfall and suddenly the desert becomes a carpet of colour. These flowers spring up. And the amazing thing is that there is no man in a land where there is no man. And, and what, what God's saying to Job here is, Job, I, I not only create, I, I, I not only uh, show my wisdom in providing uh, productively for man's needs and for the needs of livestock, but my, my creation uh, incorporates the need for beauty. And these things have their place in their own right as part of the, the great tapestry of creation. And everything is interdependent in a world that simply bursts with colour. Chaotic, vibrant colour. And we think of Jesus, uh, who called on us to consider the flowers of the field. And he, again, has the same kind of picture, but in Israel, uh, thinking of the, the wild flowers that we can see on, on the macher lands of, of the Western Isles. Uh, and they, 
they blossom and they explode in explosions of colour and they're gone. But they show for a short time the beauty of God, his gracious, overflowing bounty. The creator alone gives birth to and causes frost and ice to form. He glazes the face of the deep with ice. Then we look up further in the heavens, beyond the the, the great stores of water, the stores of ice and, and frosts and snow, to the constellations of the heavens. And God has bound and loosed and guides the bear with her children. These are wonderful images of of God's sovereign power over over the stars. And it also seems that there's a a reference to the the, the belief that in astrology that the course of stars uh, had an impact on the the life of people on earth. You know, the kind of beliefs that we have still behind horoscopes. And without giving any any reality, any claim of reality to that kind of thinking... Uh, God uses uh, those images and the beliefs that go with them uh, to speak of his sovereignty over his earth. It's a wonderful picture in verse 35 of uh, lightning bolts uh, being assembled before their great general and being sent on their way, reporting to God, here we are. They do his bidding. They are directed according to his wisdom. What a beautiful picture in verse 37. Who can tip over the water jars, or literally the the water skins of the heavens? And the picture is of of God decanting the rains from uh, the, 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 the water skins of the heavens. It's fantastic, beautiful pictures of God's wise counsel. He sends the water from the wine, the water skins of heaven at just the right time to water the dusty earth. Chapter 39 and the close of chapter 38, uh, the emphasis is now on, on living uh, creatures and on how the Life in the wild, as it were, uh, indicates that God is the great governor. God's providence or his counsel extends to the wild and the foolish and the dangerous aspects of life. Now, the the picture that we have of God's counsel from the end of chapter 38 to the the end of chapter 39, it's not the kind of things that you you usually find on the, the, the covers of nature calendars or or on, or on screen savers and computers, you know. Uh, it's nature red in tooth and claw. Uh, we have a picture at the beginning, end of chapter 38, of the, the prey that the, the lion has been provided uh, with by God, God's uh, provision. And it's all brutally realistic. God provides prey for the lions and carrion for the hungry crows. And then... The picture becomes more gentle. Uh, God knows where uh, the, the mountain goat gives birth. Her, 
hidden labor suite is known to him. And he counts down the days of her pregnancy and the time that her young have before they're ready to leave. And nobody sees. Uh, it's it's uh, out in, in the, the wilderness somewhere. But God is watching over. Now, domesticated animals like sheep, uh, they require uh, constant human watching and occasional uh, intervention. But creatures like the mountain goat uh, need no such attention, for God has his eye upon them. He knows where they are. He set the times of their gestation and their parturition. He's the Lord of time and of times. And Job's times are in God's hands. And your times and my times are in God's hands. He's the Lord of time and eternity. The wild ass ranges freely in the salty scrubland. And uh, he's free. There's no one to shout at him. There, there is no driver to crack the whip. He hears uh, the tumult in the distant city. And it has nothing to do with him. He ranges freely. And it's God's gift. The wild ox is a, is a much more uh, fearsome beast than we might expect. It, it was uh, a beast of, of legendary dimensions and, 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 and ferocity. God asks, will the wild ox consent to serve you? Uh, God is asking farmer Job, uh, will, you, uh, will you harness up the wild ox to do your plowing? Of course it would serve Job, but it serves God's purposes in this web of creation. And even in this, this delightful uh, cameo of the ostrich, uh, it's the only one where there's no question asked of Job, but uh, the picture of the ostrich is of the, the silly bird, the foolish bird. Uh, and of course the ostrich is kind of uh, funny to look at, but the, the great folly of the ostrich is that uh, she lays her egg uh, near the surface of the sand. Uh, the silly bird uh, is careless of the fact that other animals can come and tread on the, on the egg and, and uh, the, the and the egg will fail to hatch. And she seems to abandon her young. She is a disinterest in her young. And yet this creature, to whom God seems to have withheld wisdom, is also endued with great powers of speed. God has a place for the ostrich, the silly ostrich, in his counsels. Then the next one is the wild horse, or uh, the, the, more like, properly, the, the, the war horse. It's a powerful, uh, awesome picture. Uh, think of the, the dark riders in, in uh, Lord of the Rings. Powerful, threatening. This horse is unafraid of the din of battle. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. And it's God who gives the war horse his strength and fearlessness. And then the chapter concludes with pictures of uh, birds of prey. The hawk soaring in the air and migrating south. The eagle, the eagle with uh, her legendary powers of sight. The eagle is able to see a small detail from hundreds of meters high. And the eagle comes and swoops on the prey. And the implication between the verses is that the, the, the prey has been caught and brought back to the eerie and torn apart piece from piece 
for her young. What a grim close to, to these majestic chapters. <coughs> His young ones feast on blood, and where the slain is, there is he. And what's notable about uh, this chapter is that um, if, you, if you look at what they have in common, they're all wild animals, aren't they? There are no domesticated animals uh, in the list, ones that Job, the farmer, would be familiar with. Uh, it's as though God is saying to Job, there is a wild world out there, away from your well-ordered farms, and yet this wild nature, red in tooth and claw, is in my counsel also. It is my creation under my governance and serves my purposes, Job. There is an order to life where violence and death and loss have got a vital part to play. Uh, in this world, there can be no life without death, even violent death. Job, what if the wild world was to invade the serenity of your well-ordered world? Job, uh, were that to take place, it would still be within my counsel and it would serve my good ends. And that's the challenge. God is not less good or less wise or less just simply because Job cannot see how good is being worked out in his life. Because God is just too vast for someone like Job and like me and like you to comprehend, to, to, to catch up together and understand what God is doing at any one time. And the challenge to Job is to, to walk by faith and not by sight and, and not to strike out against God or claim that he is unjust or not speaking or that he's got his timing wrong. <coughs> Jeff Thomas uh, of Abariswith told uh, of a young couple, a young Russian couple, Adela and Sergei, uh, who fell in love. And they married in August 1985. And at their marriage, they, they made their vows, as they do, to uh, love one another and live together till death as do part. And the year after they were married, Adela, 25 years old, was diagnosed as having Hodgkin's disease. And I suppose she would ask the question, why? Why me, of all my, my friends and fellow students, the folks that she had studied with, why was it me? And then the, the next three years, the three years uh, in their marriage, married life, a gruelling series of chemo with all its complications, uh, Adela in hospital with Sergei beside her. The end, she was told... Uh, no more treatment. Adela, an outgoing personality, a keen sense of humour. Uh, when her hair fell out, uh, she uh, dressed up as a clown, painted herself and went from ward to ward in the children's hospital and cheered up the patients there. The impossibility of having children hit home. She resisted self-pity. She said to Sergei, I will try to adopt a child. And then they ran into red tape. 
But that didn't stop them. He bought a crib, brought home this crib, and Adela made baby things, and alas, nothing came of that. In January 1989, after three years of marriage, she passed away. And shortly before, she wrote from hospital to her husband (coughs) these words. Please, when I die, remember I was no hero, that I couldn't always accept God's will, that I was a sinner, and I failed in service and love to others, that I knew despair, depression, fear and doubt and other temptations of the devil. Remember too that I loved laughter better than tears, that you can die with cancer but that you can also live with it and joke about it. Please don't keep things because I made them or wrote them. They're only earthly things, nothing special. Remember rather that God's will has no why, that his way is best, always that he loves us even when we don't love him, that in the church you never stand alone. Hope is greater than despair. Faith is greater than fear. And God's power and kingdom one day will be victorious. So wonderful words. And nearer to home, um, I was chatting with with Valerie Sim, who's... Uh, spoken uh, to us here in the past, the issue worker for Lanarkshire. Uh, Valerie is a capable, intelligent person and, and uh, seemingly excelled academically in school. And yet she was sharing that for 24 years uh, she was laid low with ME, just robbed of energy, unable to work, to study, frustrated not to be able to serve the Lord. And I wondered what it must have been like to have known Emmy for that length of time and what it was like to get to year 22 and to think this, this is going to be it this is going to be it for the rest of my life and God removed the illness and gave her back her health and her energy again God's wisdom aircraft pilots speak of the, the disorientating effect that takes place when, when a, a plane that they're piloting goes into a, a tailspin. And in those moments before blackout becomes a possibility, they can no longer trust their senses as to how they're situated. They've no idea where the true horizon lies. And they need to fly blind and trust their instruments. And God is saying to Job, and God is saying to us certainly, because Job didn't know about aircraft, but God is saying to us, we have to fly blind at times. Uh, There are times when we we cannot know the whys and the wherefores. And we have to trust in God's all-circumscribing knowledge, that he knows everything. His ways are beyond finding out, but his goodness is unfailing. And we need to believe that in the end, what is happening to us will be shown to be good and just and will have worked out loving purpose in our lives, though 
at the moment we cannot see. Amen, and may God bless to us his most holy word.